Good morning. I am Deb Haygood, and I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word this semester. And that music was beautiful, the guitar and flute and all the voices. Um, you know, Valentine's Day was Tuesday, and I don't know about you, but I was fascinated with those Valentine cards that you opened up and they play music, and I got them for my grandchildren, and every time I opened it, I was still kind of surprised by it. And I was sitting here um, singing this morning, listening to the music and the voices, and I thought, we're lifting up a musical Valentine to the Lord with those words of uh, love and adoration. That was beautiful. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for those praises, to Jenny for leading us in that. And I also want to thank those of you that have prayed for me and for the other teachers this semester. I am in need of those prayers and they are greatly appreciated. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a joy and a privilege to be here this morning. And I am so delighted to see all of you here this morning. So thank you very much for coming. I hope you're enjoying this book of Mark. We are learning so much about the Savior. I know that I am. Last week, we continued learning about Jesus' power. He is all-powerful, and his power is life-changing, and it's available to all who will believe. It's available. Um, Shelley told us how Jesus served the um, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, the, those that were shunned by society, and those that were looked up to in society. And this week we're looking at chapter 6, and I just can't believe it's just chapter 6. I feel like we have seen Jesus doing so many things in so many places, touching so many people's lives, that it seems like we should be farther than chapter 6. And um, Mark also writes with that sense of urgency, um, that time is short. And we see that very clearly in this chapter today. Time is short, and Jesus wants to give as many people as he can the good news, so they have a chance to believe believe in him and to follow him and to enter the kingdom of God, this kingdom of God, um, where God is going to write his truth on our hearts and it's our hearts that he wants. Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom of God and one day when he comes back again, it will be a kingdom reigning on earth. But first, he wants our hearts, hearts to love him and serve him and to be in relationship with him. Because Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting, uh, we see that the people um, are having uh, trouble accepting him and understanding him. And so there's many different thoughts in, uh, of different people on who Jesus is. And that's what we're looking at today in chapter 6. If you'll turn there, we are looking at the different thoughts um, that people had about Jesus and who he is so let's just get started, and I'm going to start reading verse 1 in chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. 
So Jesus here is in Nazareth. That's his hometown. It's about 20 miles southwest from Capernaum. I hope you found that on your map. We said that Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters as he started his ministry. But Nazareth is his hometown. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. So he's gone back home to his hometown. And when the Sabbath comes, he's in the synagogue and he's teaching them. And it says they are amazed. They are wowed by his teaching. That word amazed means um, overwhelmed or astounded. He was very different from the usual traveling rabbis that came to teach in the synagogue. And they began to ask themselves, where did he get this teaching? Where does this come from? And he even does miracles. Now, we know that he didn't do very many miracles in Nazareth, but they had heard about all the miracles that he had been doing. Where does this come from? Well, the obvious answer is from God. But what they know about Jesus blinds them to this truth. They see Jesus as that carpenter, that ordinary, familiar carpenter, humble profession. He wasn't a prince. He wasn't a king. He was a common laborer. And he, they knew his brothers and his sisters. They said, we know them. I mean, he's Mary's son. Now, saying Mary's son was a derogatory comment. Um, Some people say it's because Joseph was dead, and he probably was dead at this time. But even if he was dead, the Jewish custom, they uh, would have been that they would have called him Joseph's son. So by saying Mary's son, this is an insult. And it probably reflects back on Mary being pregnant before her marriage to Joseph. And we know that uh, Jesus' brothers and sisters, they were born after to Mary and Joseph after the birth of Jesus. And at first they didn't believe in him. But we know that James goes on to be a leader in the early Christian church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. And probably the book of Jude was written by his brother uh, Judas. And so uh, maybe all of his brothers and sisters came to believe in him. But right now in Nazareth, They don't believe in him, and they are offended by him. They take offense. They couldn't explain him, and so they couldn't accept him. They couldn't reconcile the familiar carpenter with God's anointed one, so they chose unbelief. And because of their unbelief, Jesus did very little work in Nazareth. No miracles except for the healing of the sick of a few who came to him in faith. Now, let me say that um, their unbelief did not put limitations on Jesus. Jesus was still the all-powerful one that we saw last week in chapter 5. But Jesus' purpose was to perform miracles in the presence of faith. His mission was to further the kingdom of God, not to try and convince or override the, uh, the stubborn people who had chosen to not believe in Jesus. They had rejected him. And they would not be convinced. Faith recognizes the power and the presence of Jesus. Jesus, God the Son. So as we look at this uh, section of scripture, we must ask ourselves the hard question. Does my familiarity with God's word or God's truth or God's creation or my uh, Christian life, does the familiarity of all that cause me to be apathetic? or unconcerned, or maybe even to lack faith. You know, if that's the case for you, if you see a sunset, 
you don't think anything of it. If you're reading the word of God and nothing seems very fresh, your prayers don't seem to get over your head, then do something different. Maybe read out of a different Bible, a different translation, in a different place. Get up and move to a different place in your house and pray and ask God to reveal something fresh to you out of his word. During your prayer time, maybe you need to do that different. Pray out loud. Maybe take a walk in the park and pray as you walk along in the park. Make a conscious effort to be aware of God. When you wake up in the morning, ask him to reveal his hand in your life. And when you lay down to go to sleep at night, right before you close your eyes, think back over your day. And thank him and praise him for all that happened, the good things and the bad things. And you'll begin to see God again in your lives. We want to make a conscious effort because, ladies, we want Jesus working in our lives. We do not want that lack of faith on our part to hinder him in any way. Do not let familiarity with the Christian life hinder your walk with Jesus. Let's go on to this next section, and we're going to see um, the disciples here, and they think of Jesus as their teacher, a great teacher and teacher with authority, but oftentimes we see them calling him rabbi. Verse 6 says, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This is just a summary statement. Um, Mark lets us know that Jesus is still in Galilee, and he's going kind of in a circle from village to village, preaching the good news. We see this um, a couple of times in Mark. And then in verse 7 we read, Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. So we see that Jesus is going to send out the twelve on their first mission journey. And I love it. It says he calls them. They have a calling. They are special to him. These are the twelve men that he's been loving and teaching and training and pouring himself into. And now he's going to send them out two by two. I love that. He's giving them a partner. Now, there's many reasons why he could have sent them out two by two. I think it makes good sense. It's common sense to have a partner. Um, We rely on God. Our strength comes from God. And oftentimes, God meets that need um, through the teamwork of others. When we're with someone else, they strengthen us. We can challenge and motivate each other, spur one another on to um, good works and to action. Oftentimes we say two heads are better than one. In fact, in Ecclesiastes 4.9 we read, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. There's also maybe a second reason Jesus sent them out two by two, and that's because in the Jewish law it said that two witnesses bring validity to a testimony. So the two of them giving out the message of God would make it valid. In fact, in John eight seventeen we read, In your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. So they went out two by two, and it says that Jesus gave them authority over evil spirits. He gave them authority. Now when we read um, this same story in Matthew, and I've got it on your verse sheet, Matthew includes healing. He called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Mark is always emphasizing that Jesus was in a battle uh, with Satan, and so he emphasizes this authority over the evil spirits. And then we see Jesus giving them instructions because they are representing Jesus. And so their conduct on their mission and the content of their message are extremely important. So let's look at these instructions. Verse 8, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. 
He's saying, don't take any extras, just what you have. And I think he's saying, rely on God, not on your own resources. Rely on God. And that's a good thing for us to remember when we go out, whether it's a missionary journey or whatever our work is, to rely on God. Trust more and worry less. Rely on God. Verse 9, wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. He's saying, travel light and get going. There's an urgency here. Time is short. Take what you have and get moving. Keep it simple. Be efficient. Then in verse 10, it says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Accept hospitality and be grateful. Be grateful for that. How you treat people is important. Don't be looking around and thinking, I call it upgrading. You know, let's upgrade and find a better house and better food and see where we can go. We're all about upgrading. Jesus was saying, treat people with kindness and accept the hospitality. Where you first stay, stay there until you move on. And then in verse 11, it says, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, then shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So he's saying, leave if not received. If they don't want to hear the message, that's okay. Just move on and shake the dust off when you walk out of their town. Now, shaking the dust off, that was what devout Jews did when they were traveling. After they would leave a Gentile area and enter back into the Jewish territory, they would make a, a show of wiping the dust off. And that was to disassociate themselves with the pagan Gentiles. When the disciples did it, when they would shake the dust off their feet, it was saying to those people, okay, now you are responsible before God for rejecting his message. The disciples weren't responsible. They had fulfilled their responsibility to present the message. They weren't responsible for their rejection. Some will follow Jesus and some will not. Jesus had been telling them this. That was what was in the parable of the soils, that some will listen and some will not. And they had seen that in Nazareth. Some would reject Jesus and not follow him. Their job was to present the message of God clearly and faithfully. And that's our job today. To present the message of God clearly and faithfully. And that gets us into the content of their message. What was the content? And we read um, in verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They went out to preach repentance. And Matthew also adds to announce the kingdom of God, which goes together. Because we've said repent is to turn. It's to turn towards God and away from whatever it was that was keeping us from God. Turn towards God and accept the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ and enter into the kingdom of God. And they also brought a message of hope and freedom and mercy displayed in their healing the sick and freeing the demon-possessed. Their message included both physical and spiritual. Because the kingdom of God is both physical and spiritual. Jesus was totally man and totally God. Physical and spiritual. We can't separate our physical and spiritual lives. Who we are and what we do and how we act and where we go and what we think. How we live. Those are connected. Our spiritual and physical lives. And so we want to consider what is my conduct as a follower of Jesus? And what am I saying about him? What is the content of my message about Jesus? Let's continue on and look at verse 14. And we see that um, King Herod is uh, 
This story is about King Herod, and this is like a little story sandwiched in between the disciples going out and then when the disciples come back to Jesus. And Mark uses this opportunity for us to learn um, something about Herod and John the Baptist. So read with me verse 14. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. So Herod um, has heard about Jesus, and in verse 14, when it says heard about this, this refers to the ministry and work of Jesus and his disciples. They're preaching and teaching and healing, and he's also heard what some people are saying. They're saying it's John the Baptist raised from the dead, or Elijah, or a prophet like the Old Testament. Now... Jesus was a prophet. He called himself a prophet because a prophet speaks the word of God. Now, he was different from the prophets in the Old Testament. They were speaking the words of God. But Jesus was speaking the message of God because he is God. So he is different from those Old Testament prophets. And this Elijah and John the Baptist, that really comes from a prophecy in Malachi. We looked at it briefly when we did chapter 1. In Malachi 3, it talks about a forerunner coming before the Messiah to clear the way and to announce that he is coming. And then in Malachi 4, in the very next chapter on your verse sheet, it says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so some people were literally looking for Elijah to come back. Now, Jesus tells us that John the Baptist is Elijah. And we read that in Matthew eleven twelve through 14. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing. And forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Now, he's not saying John the Baptist was literally Elijah, but he was coming um, as Elijah. He actually dressed like Elijah, and he spoke like Elijah boldly and forcefully, and he was getting the people ready for the Messiah, Jesus. He had baptized Jesus. He had said, this is the Son of God. God himself had said, this is my Son, when Jesus was baptized. He was telling the people, If they had listened to John the Baptist, they would have known the truth and seen that Jesus was none of these things. He was God the Son. But the Jewish people have had a hard time listening to the prophets always. Way back all through the Old Testament, we see that they had trouble listening to the prophets. And once again, they did not listen to the prophet John the Baptist, and so they missed the truth. And so Mark is now going to use this opportunity to tell us about Herod and what happened to John the Baptist. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. So you see some insight here. Herod looks and sounds pretty scared. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Pretty interesting, Herod. Let me tell you a little bit um, about him. 
<clears throat> he is Herod Antipas, and his father was Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was Jewish, and he ruled all of Palestine under the auspices of Rome, because Rome is in charge. It's a Roman empire. And when Herod the Great, he was, Herod the Great was uh, the one ruling when Jesus was born, and he sent out that edict to kill all the babies under two. Well, when Herod the Great dies, then Palestine was divided into four sections to be ruled by four of his sons, who were all born from different wives. And one of them is this guy, Herod Antipas. And he is uh, kind of ruling under the auspices of Rome over Galilee and Perea, those sections of Palestine. And we see here that um, Herod Antipas is married to Herodias. Now, Herodias um, doesn't tell us here, but on a chart you can see that Herodias is actually the daughter of another one of these sons of Herod the Great by a different wife. And she marries Philip uh, son of Herod the Great by one wife and then she divorces him and she marries Herod Antipas so her half uncle she marries one half uncle and then she marries another half uncle and uh, she's not really a great gal and Herod is not really a great guy and John the Baptist has been speaking the truth to him and telling him this is not right now he's fascinated by John the Baptist um, because he's a man of character and Herod lacks character, and he lacks integrity. He is easily swayed. He is the exact opposite of John the Baptist. He's fascinated by John the Baptist, but he also is Jewish, and he knows the law, and he's afraid that the people are going to revolt with these words of John the Baptist. So he has him put into prison, hoping that he will pipe down, and the people will not um, remember everything he's been saying. But... Herodias, this is not enough for her. She will not rest until John the Baptist is killed. She has this grudge against him. And so um, let me tell you this uh, next little part, starting in verse 21. I'm just going to summarize it, but it's Herod's birthday, and he has a big party, and he invites all the important people to come to it. And then they're probably pretty drunk, and Herodias sends in Salome, her daughter. Now, this is her daughter from that first husband, Philip. And Salome is probably mid-teens, maybe 16, and she dances for him. And she is a product um, of this immoral uh, household that she has grown up in. And so her dance is pretty sensual. It's pretty provocative. And it says it pleased Herod and his guests. And so because he is a braggart and a fool and he's trying to impress his guests, he makes this bold statement with an oath and says, you can have whatever you want, up to half my kingdom. Well, first of all, it's not really his kingdom to give her. It's under Roman authority. But still, Salome knows that he's generous, willing to give her just about whatever she asks for. So she runs out. She says to her, Mom, what should I ask? And Herodias says, this is what she has been waiting for. Because in 21, when it says, finally, the opportune time came... That was the opportune time for Herodias to um, have John the Baptist killed. So she immediately says, ask for his head. So Salome goes in and she asks um, Herod Antipas to give her the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herodias wants to make sure that he is killed. Saying kill him wasn't enough. She wanted his head. In verse 26 we read, the king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. 
On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It says here that Herod was greatly distressed. He was grieved. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist because he was afraid of John the Baptist and he knew he was a holy man. He knew on some level this was not the right thing to do. But overriding that, that fear and knowing the truth there was this feeling of being embarrassed in front of his friends. And um, so to save face... And because he lacked the courage to reject the request, he orders that John the Baptist to be killed, and he brings his head to Salome. No wonder Herod is afraid that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. He has a guilty conscience, and he is evil, and he is weak, and he is scared. Now Mark uses this story of John the Baptist to foreshadow the coming death of Jesus. And I also think that this example of John the Baptist in contrast to the example of Herod Antipas is something for us to consider. As followers of Jesus, we need to do the right thing regardless of the outcome, regardless of the difficulty that might come our way, regardless of the embarrassment. John the Baptist spoke the truth, regardless of what it meant, and the consequences were death. Herod couldn't even do the right thing because he didn't want to be embarrassed. And I think that it is a good thing for us to think about. As followers of Jesus, we want to do the right thing. And we want to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. On your verse sheet, I have uh, Ephesians 4.15 that says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Now, speaking the truth in love here is in the context of growing mature, learning the difference between the false way or the evil way and the way of truth, the way of Jesus. Ladies, you know the truth. You are here today studying and learning the truth. We want to incorporate the truth in our lives and live out the truth. And when someone comes to us asking for counsel or discernment, we want to speak the truth to them in love. Now, you may think you do that. I oftentimes think that I'm doing that until someone pointed out to me recently that oftentimes we get sidetracked by our desire to comfort the person or to encourage the person. We sort of forget to speak the truth in love. These are hard things. People come to us. Maybe someone's come to you and they're telling you the um, hard stories of their husband the things that he's doing that are very difficult and very hard. And so you begin to want to encourage them and you say, he does sound like a jerk. I can see why you want to leave him. The truth is, we should say, this is the man that God gave you. Let's pray that God will give you the strength to deal with this situation. Let's pray for God's healing work to be a part of this marriage. Or maybe someone comes to you and they're telling you their selfish plan. Or maybe it's the pride in their life. Or maybe it's immorality that they're involved in. And sometimes we get caught up in trying to comfort them and encourage them. And we forget to speak the truth in love. Ladies, we want to be followers of Jesus that do the right thing regardless of the circumstances. And we want to be people that speak the truth in love. So that closes the parentheses here. There's a lot more we could say, but we're going to move on and look at this next section. 
verse 30, and we're going to see the apostles, the disciples, coming back to talk to Jesus about their trip. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. I love this here. Um, You can just feel the excitement of the disciples as they come back to tell Jesus the exciting stories that they've just been through. Um, You can hear them probably all talking at once, and I would love to know what Peter said in his um, outright manner. So they're excited. Um, They're on a spiritual high, kind of a mountaintop experience, we call it. Some of you, or maybe all of you, have been in that place. Maybe after a mission trip that we just heard about. Or maybe it's after a prayer retreat or hearing a really good speaker that's motivated you. And you're kind of up on that spiritual high. And Jesus knows that what they need now is rest. Rest. Rest is so important. And I love the three things that he says. He says, come with me. We need Jesus in our rest. And he says, by yourselves to a quiet place. You need to get alone in quiet with Jesus to find that rest. So let's talk a minute about rest. Rest is very important. We know that. Um, God gives us the example right in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2. I think I've got that on your verse sheet. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. He rested from all of his work. Not because he needed to rest. God wasn't tired. He gave us that example because he created us and he knew we need rest. We need rest. Physical rest and spiritual rest. And they go together, by the way. Spiritual rest Physical rest, it's that calm and that peace and that quiet you experience in the presence of the Lord. William Barclay calls it the rhythm of the Christian life. He says it's that continuous journey of going out from the presence of men into the presence of God. And then going from the presence of God back out into the presence of men. And it's that continuous journey. It's work and then rest. And then after our rest, we go back. To work, And our work is not very good. It suffers pretty quickly if we do not rest. Rest is important. Um, reminds me of a really good friend in college. One day she said to me, Deb, you're just like a little kid. When you get tired, you get grumpy. Now, I, I, I took offense at that. I, I was thinking, whoa, you know, I can't believe you said that. And then I thought about it, and she was right. And through my life, I've looked at that. It's pretty easy to tell when I'm tired because I get grumpy. That's what happens. We all need rest. And as busy women, sometimes it's hard to find that rest. But you must put rest into your everyday. Spiritual rest as well as physical rest. Now those of you in here with um, little children, I know how hard that is because they're always on the move. And so maybe during their nap time, you want to take just 15 minutes. Sit down on the couch, put your feet up, um, maybe with a cup of coffee. And just uh, talk to Jesus. Tell him about your day. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him what's going on. Praise him for who he is. Think about a scripture verse. Maybe something that you've read and you've thought about. Think about that. Ponder that as you rest for just that 15 minutes. 
Maybe it's a day. I had a few of those when I was a young mom where they didn't take a nap. They just ran around like crazy all day long. And when Scott came home, I was pretty crazy as well. And so maybe in those kind of days, you want to just get in the bathtub for 10 minutes before you go to bed and just sit there and relax and talk to Jesus in the bathtub. Ponder a scripture verse in the bathtub. Put rest in your life. Women have always had busy lives. Think about when they had to pick the cotton and then put it into cloth and cut out the clothes and then wash them on a scrub board. So we don't want to go there. Women have always had busy lives. You have to make time in your day for rest. Let's go on and see, um, read verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Actually, back in verse 33, it says, Many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And so there was this large crowd. Now, they were leaving Capernaum, and they were going to Bethsaida, which is Bethsaida Julius, on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. If you have your map there, you might want to see, look. Um, they just went across that top part, northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And some people think... People had heard where they were going, and so they ran ahead of them to get there. Some think they just ran along the shoreline and that the boat never got out of their sight, and they just ran along following the boat so that they got to Bethsaida, Julius, before Jesus. And so here are the disciples and Jesus, and they were going to rest, and they pull their boat up onto the sand, and here is this huge crowd of people. And what does Jesus think? What does he do? Does he get angry? Is he upset? Is he irritated? Does he say, oh, no, look at all these people. I am so tired. Hey, pretend you don't see them. Let's get back in the boat and sail someplace else. Yeah, you've done that, haven't you? I don't really see her. I'm in the store, but I'm going to keep on going. Okay, he doesn't do that. No, it says that he looked at these people and he had compassion on them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has come to serve as the good shepherd. In fact, in John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. This was his work. Henry Nouwen has a great quote that I love. He says, I used to complain about all the interruptions to my work until I realized these interruptions were my work. You know, I want to view interruptions in my schedule as opportunities to serve Jesus and do his work. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, reaches out to these people. And the first thing he does is he offers them protection. He teaches them. They're lost. They need leadership and instruction. They're like sheep. And we know that sheep uh, are easily get lost. Without a shepherd, they stray immediately off the path, and then pretty soon they're in grave danger. They're in a thorn bush, or they've fallen down a hill, and they're upside down, or they're in deep water, drowning. Sheep need a shepherd. These people needed instruction to keep them from straying even further from God. They had gotten off the path. They had strayed from God. And so Jesus teaches them um, the word of God to keep them, to protect them from evil and sin and ultimately death. He teaches them the truth and he gives them words of life. He wants to gather them up and put them back on the path towards God. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and truth always protect me. 
He offers them protection through the truth of his word. And then the next thing we're going to see as the good shepherd, he wants to provide for his sheep. Let's look at verse 35. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? So Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Jesus wants to provide for his sheep. And I think this is a very interesting conversation that he has with the disciples. You can see that they are very tired, that they are a little irritable, and they're not really thinking very clearly. And so Jesus, in his conversation, tries to lead them along when he says, you feed them. Now, let's think about these disciples. You know, they get all upset and they're trying to figure out how much, you know, calculate how much money we would need to get bread for all these people. Where would we go? Hey, they've seen Jesus do amazing things. They've seen him stop a storm with just a word. They've seen him heal the paralytic. They've seen him heal by people just touching his clothes, driving out demons. They've seen Jesus do all these miraculous things. And not only that, they've just gotten back from a mission trip where they were doing miraculous things. Yet they have forgotten all of this. And so Jesus leads them along and says, well, what what do you have? Go and see. And we know that they get a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and they bring this humble food to Jesus. And that's all he needs. He's going to provide for these 5,000 plus people as well as the disciples, and he's going to give them an example of what he can do with just this humble amount of food. Ladies, do not let your lack of resources blind you to the power of God. Don't be blinded to see his power by your lack of resources. Give what you have to God and let him do the rest. Let him multiply it. That's what he was saying to the disciples. That's what he's saying to us. Just give what you have to God and let him do with it as he will. You know, it's so easy for me to say, and yet it's so hard for me to remember and for me to do. And then the third thing, I see Jesus provides the sheep with peace. Let's read um, verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Let's put the picture up of um, the Sea of Galilee and the mountainside there. What a beautiful picture. And what a beautiful picture we hear see of the green grass. It was probably in late spring and the grass is green, kind of like we see in this picture. And I immediately thought of Psalm 23. And you probably thought of Psalm 23 as well, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And then it says um, here, they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. That word groups literally means garden plot by garden plot. You can see their colorful clothes on this green grass in these orderly groups like a flower garden. And you get this real sense of peace and calm and order. Now we don't know how Jesus accomplished this miracle, um, We just know that it came from his hands. When it says here that um, he broke the 
bread, gave thanks, and he gave it to the disciples. That word gave to the disciples means to keep on giving. And as he gave the bread, there was more bread and more bread and more fish. And so they passed it around so that all 5,000 people, they didn't get just a morsel or just a crumb. Like some people want to talk about this, that it wasn't really a miracle. No, they ate until they were satisfied. And then the disciples went and picked up the leftovers and there were 12 basketfuls, one for each disciple. It was a true miracle. Interestingly enough, though, this... um, Miracle is the only one that's told in all four Gospels. And yet we don't really see any word of amazement at the end of it. And they, Jesus had fed 5,000 men, and we don't know how many women and children. And I think Mark may have done that to point out that the uh, disciples really didn't get it. And so Jesus has one more miracle for them to increase their faith. And we're going to look at that quickly, starting in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, those of you map people that are sharp are thinking, hey, they're in Bethsaida. How are they going to Bethsaida? Okay, there's a little town, like a little suburb south of Capernaum that was called Bethsaida by Galilee. So they were leaving Bethsaida Julius and they were going to go south of Capernaum. And after leaving them, Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. Okay, so we see that word immediately, and you're thinking, so what was the rush here? Well, we know from the account in John 6 that the people wanted to come and make Jesus king by force. And Jesus knew this was not his mission. He also knew that the disciples were not ready, were not um, able to deal with that at this time. So he puts them in a boat, and he goes up to the mountainside to pray. It's a lot like chapter 1, when this happened before. In the face of great popularity, Jesus goes to be alone with the Father. I think to get strength, I think to remain focused on his mission, which is the cross. Then in verse 47, we read, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And from John 6, we know that that's about three and a half miles into the middle of the lake. And Jesus is alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Okay, he is seeing the disciples with his divine eyes, not spiritual eyes. And you can see that the wind is blowing them. And it's so strong that they've put down the sails. And now they are rowing. And they're rowing into the wind. And they're not making much headway. Because it says about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them. Now the fourth watch would be about uh, between three and six in the morning. And so they left in late afternoon. At sunset, they're three and a half miles out. And now they are still rowing between three and six in the morning. So think about it. They have been rowing a long time, maybe nine hours. And it says Jesus uh, went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. It can be better translated, coming alongside them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. You know, once again, Jesus is doing the unexpected and the impossible. And the disciples weren't expecting Jesus to be walking on the water. And so they didn't even recognize him. And they are scared out of their minds. And what does Jesus do? Immediately, he spoke to them and he said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. 
Immediately, Jesus speaks words of comfort and encouragement to the disciples. He is not irritated with them. He is not harsh with them. He speaks words of comfort and encouragement. He says, it is I. And that's translated, I am. You look that up in your homework. I am is the name of God. We saw that when Moses said to God, who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God says, tell him, I am. And they get the word Yahweh from that. It is the name of God. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, he wants them to see and understand more fully that he is God. He is God. Oftentimes after we've been on a spiritual mountaintop, we come down to find um, great difficulty in our lives or maybe in the lives of somebody very close to us. And just that quickly, we forget the power of Jesus the provision of Jesus, the protection of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus. We see here Jesus patiently bringing the disciples along in their knowledge and faith in him. And just as patiently, he increases our faith with his presence. He makes himself known to us with his presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he increases our faith with his presence. And then we have these last few verses here. I'm not going to read them, but they cross over. They land at Gennesaret, which is just right there below Capernaum. They anchor, and just as soon as they get out, everybody's coming to them to um, be healed. And we see Jesus, the miracle worker, once again healing the people. And it says that they even come, and just touching him, they're healed. Now, Shelley told us last week, and this is important, his clothing wasn't magical or special. That wasn't what was healing him. It was the power of Jesus that healed them. One quote said it like this, healing was not affected by a touch, but by the gracious action of Jesus who honored this means of expressing their faith in him. And so this chapter ends with many people believing in Jesus, having great faith in Jesus, and it's quite a contrast from where we began in the beginning of chapter six in Nazareth. We've seen all sorts of uh, Thoughts and things that people are saying about Jesus. But as we close today, the important question is, who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God and a gracious God. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the reminders, Lord, that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is with us. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would cause each one of us in this room to remember that. Father, to look for you, to see Jesus with us in all that we're doing. Father, may it make a difference in our lives, the way we live and the way we act, in our conduct and in what we say about you. We love you, Lord, and I just pray that you and your mighty mercy and grace would bless each woman in this room in a mighty way, that they would feel your presence as they walk out of here and through their day and through their weekend. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.